0: Whenever you use a healthcare service, behind the scene, there's a billing record, what many people refer to as a healthcare claim, that documents your information, information about your healthcare provider, what procedures were performed, as well as the charges, and for what diagnoses. Now, keep in mind that diagnoses on healthcare bills are imperfect. A person might receive a wrong diagnosis, and on the flip side, a person who has a disease may not receive a diagnosis, for a variety of reasons. However, despite the limitations, diagnoses on healthcare bills can shed light into how the diseases are recognized by the medical community at large. Dementia has long been thought to be underdiagnosed, but higher levels of public education and more diagnostic and treatment options may be changing how often clinicians document and bill for dementia. Several external factors could also affect how often dementia is identified on healthcare bills, such as the implementation of electronic health records that could make it easier to document diagnoses, and the influence of the National Alzheimer's Project Act in 2012 that raised considerable awareness. Also, Although it may be hard to believe, even little things can impact how diagnoses are documented, such as the expansion by Medicare in 2011 that simply increased the number of allowable diagnoses on a bill. Understanding dementia identification also has important implications for health policy. You see, dementia was added into the risk adjustment strategy, known as the hierarchical condition categories, used by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for compensating health care plans. In other words, dementia is among the conditions that can influence reimbursement. In addition, identification of dementia is important for economic evaluations too, especially the cost of care at the end of life that receives a lot of attention. In this episode, we'll speak with a researcher who examined recent US trends in dementia diagnosis At the end of life, I'm Matt Davis. And I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Mining Memory, a podcast devoted to exploring research on Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. We're joined today by Dr. Julie Bynum. Dr. Bynum is the Margaret Turpening Collegiate Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan and the Director of the Center to Accelerate Population Research in Alzheimer's the center for which this very podcast is affiliated. Her research focuses on health system performance for older adults living with dementia who have high needs, as well as the use of administrative data for informing the improvement of healthcare payment and policies. Dr. Bynum has extensive experience using Medicare claims in general for healthcare-related studies. She's here today to talk with us about the identification of dementia at the end of life. Julie Welcome back.
1: Hi, Matt. Hi, Donvin. Thank you for having me back. I'm absolutely delighted to be a, a member of the podcast.
0: Dr. Bynum was the senior author on a recent study published in JAMA Health Forum titled Trends in U.S. Medicare Decedents' Diagnosis of Dementia from 2004 to 2017. The study is attached to this episode if you want to check it out. So we'll get into the study in just a minute. But considering your experience with Medicare billing data or claims, can you tell listeners a bit about the history of research using Medicare data in general?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's not many places where we in the United States can get information about the whole population and their health and health care. It's really expensive and difficult to collect. But after the passage of Medicare, there was a centralized national billing system and as you described so nicely in the introduction, once you have a billing system, you have basically a record of each person in that system and what their diagnoses are and what health care they're, they're getting. So as computing abilities <laughs> improved and things went from tape to computers and disks and servers, um, the ability to use the Medicare system's data really expanded for research. Um, I used to be at Dartmouth, where the Dartmouth Atlas started, and that was really where Jack Wenberg began taking tapes, you know, tapes of billing data and making it into usable files. And um, really that has just expanded dramatically. One of the reasons it's so useful is every American um, over the age of 65 has a record in the Medicare system. So it's been incredibly helpful to have a full uh, population of, of all the people in that age range. Of course we don't have it for other age ranges, but for Medicare, we've been able to do a tremendous amount of research on the very basis of the fact there's a national insurance plan for that
0: population. Is it safe to say though that claims should be used for certain things, but not everything? Perhaps <laughs> it might not be like the best way to go about studying the epidemiology of a disease.
1: Hey, you're going right to the downside. What about the upsides? Uh, I think <laughs> all right. I think that's um, you know that's really true. I the, the if anyone listening to this takes away a message. It's that no matter what data source you're using, you have to think about what its strengths and what its weaknesses are and what you can use it for. We know that, for example, not everybody comes in to get all their symptoms diagnosed or treated. So that's why epidemiology, which is the study of actually the disease in the population is a little bit more challenging with the claims data because maybe people aren't receiving healthcare for any number of reasons. They don't have insurance. Um, maybe they're scared. Um, maybe they don't think they have a disease. Uh, so they don't they don't come in. So that's part of the reason that claims are imperfect. Um, and you have to be careful about how you interpret and use the data.
0: But it is good for measuring the healthcare system.
1: <laughs> it's, it's really good for measuring the healthcare system, which has been my primary interest across my career. Um, what we observe in the Medicare billing system is the health care, the treatments that are delivered to older adults in the United States. And as such, that's important. Um, important source for understanding what people actually get from the health care system um, and making some judgments about whether it's lined up with what we think they need and Understanding how we might be able to influence them receiving what they actually need through our payment and uh, and policies.
2: So, what's the sort of like the Medicare claims one hundred and one version of identifying people with dementia?
1: When you make a diagnosis with in billing data, you're basically looking at what a physician or a physical therapist or a hospital has written down on a record as the reason they gave you the treatment that they gave you. Um, so there's lots of weedy details about the different kinds of right research files and billing, billing files that exist. But basically what we do is we, um, look for the services delivered that we think the diagnosis, where we think the diagnosis might have occurred, like in a hospital or in a clinic, um, or in a nursing home, where somebody might be getting rehab, and we look at the reasons, the diagnoses for that service delivery, and that's how we get diagnoses. So that's true for dementia, it's true for diabetes, it's true for restless legs, it's true for any diagnosis that you might be interested in studying.
2: So there are some medications albeit not very good ones for dementia. Do people ever use those to find dementia or do they really just stick with the claims?
1: Yeah, you can use use all sorts of different, there's different algorithms to to identify people and people use lots of different methods. If you are interested in finding everyone who um, might possibly have the disease, you could use medications um, and you can decide to say they can have a visit for the diagnosis or a medication or if you but if you say they have to have a visit and a medication that means you're identifying a different group of people right those are people who have the diagnosis and are treated for it which is different from the people who have the diagnosis because they've had a visit or they were treated for it so those are just some of the weedy details that you got to be really careful when you're figuring out how to identify your, your population or when you're hearing about a study to understand who the study really applies to. Um, uh, because some of, these, some of these choices about the algorithm make real differences on how we interpret the results. I mean, like the, the study that we're talking about today, this is a study of deceits. So keeping in mind what that means and how they're using the healthcare systems, really important when you interpret the results from it.
0: That's a great segue to get into the study. Um, so, so I think it's safe to say that there's there's a lot of interest in looking at end of life, you know, costs and care. Um, sometimes when things get complicated from a health perspective, but why specifically look at diagnoses among Medicare decedents for something like dementia?
1: The first reason is there's been a tremendous number of studies that examine how we manage this population at the end, toward the end of life. The concern being that until maybe a decade ago, there was worry that we weren't recognizing the diagnosis of dementia as one that means prognosis is poor (laughs) over the next five years, and people were getting treatments that seemed to reflect Um, a lack of sensitivity to what those last few years of life would be like from a quality of life perspective. So there's a whole body of work about the use of feeding tubes um, and other life prolonging therapies and frequent transfers across hospitals and nursing homes that really are burdensome to a group of people who might be um, really have limited ability to understand what's happening to them and really be in the last year or two of life. so I think there's a there's a there's a care of people, <laughs> interest and in end of life. Um, and sometimes my personal opinion is I think this population is really at special risk because um, the nature of their disease, they're often can't participate in decision-making, and maybe they didn't pre-specify what they wanted, or they might not have the family members or care partners and advocates around them to help, help them shepherd their last several years of life. So I think they're really at risk for the system taking over, sort of doing what the system does um, instead of really personalizing and individualizing that choice. So I think it's a really important population for us to take a special look and take special care um, to make sure we're doing what people really need and want as they progress through the um, really devastating end stages of these of this disease.
2: You all looked at diagnoses in the past two years of life. Just any particular? Like, how did you arrive at that specific time frame to look at?
1: Yeah. So why? So basically, for for people who haven't read the study, which I'm sure is many, um, <laughs> we identified people who died. Uh, in the fee-for-service Medicare population, and then we identified among that group how, who had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease uh, or any other kind of dementia using the claims. And one, as long as somebody has data, we could go back, um, you know, years and years and years. And if they ever had a claim, we could say yes, they had dementia. But the reality is, in our healthcare system, and as people present most people don't obtain a diagnosis till very late in their disease. So what we what other studies have shown is that um, going back farther than two years really doesn't pick up more people. So um, And because of the nature of enrollment and insurance, the farther back you go, the smaller and less generalizable you make your population. So we opted to go back to two years. Um, I think the other question is, you know, I just made the argument of why dementia why end of life, you know dementia end of life, but I think for the particular policy question we were asking um, which was, has the likelihood of obtaining a diagnosis changed over time? It was important to get a group of people who have as most similar stage of disease as possible, right? Like, you know, if we went back 10 years, there could be people who have come forward with the most mild complaint, um, and then other people who have much more severe disease. By really focusing in those last couple of years of life, we're focusing on people who, um, for the most part, have late stage disease and are relatively similar to each other. It's a study design some people don't like because it's sort of a follow. It is a follow back from death design, but for this particular question of saying um, what has changed over time from a group of people who um, lived with, lived with this disease at the end of life, uh, it was the right design to go for this question.
0: This idea of using decedents, I think, might be new to some listeners, and it's interesting. Um, there's there's a so you're, I think you're hinting at so there's a methodological reason for looking at. I mean, so so. If you look, if you something like billing data, you know, you have issues with things changing across time and health status and stuff. So looking at people that are at the end of their life, presumably are more the same over time and allows you to sort of, is, is that kind of what you're getting at?
1: We can't say how from the study design, we can't say how all people with Alzheimer's disease experience the last two years of life necessarily. But we can say, among people who the health system recognizes as having dementia, this is what it looks like. Um, and while not everyone who's a decedent who dies with Alzheimer's disease has late-stage disease, certainly someone who has even mild cognitive lo- early cognitive loss, and has a tragic car accident and dies would be in this data set, the on average or the majority of people will actually have late stage disease and that shows by the average age in this study was which was 86 you know these are older older people Um, we're not seeing um necessarily the sort of we're, we're trying to avoid having the young people who i would hypothesize and i think the studies um would bear out there's real differences in who seeks care early in the disease, you know, whether it's economic, educational, um, cultural, people seek, care seeking is very different earlier in the stage, rather than the late stage disease where people are, are very, are quite dependent, need care partners. And it's, it's highly um, dependent on the healthcare system and long-term care system. So they come to the attention of the system, whether they want to or not, because of such a high rate of of hospitalization and emergency room visits due to the nature of their disease.
0: So why don't we get into the findings?
1: Yeah, so what we found is that the percent of people dying with a diagnosis of dementia has increased fairly dramatically over um, about a 13 year period. Uh, Back in 2004, about a third of Medicare Beneficiaries and fee for service Medicare died with a diagnosis, meaning they had, had 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 a diagnosis at some point in the two years prior to their death, um, and that went up almost to fifty percent. It was forty seven percent in two thousand seventeen had a had a diagnosis. So that's you know a thirty percent, thirty six percent increase over that time in the number in the percent of people who, if you said, hey, what did Grandma die with? What did maybe she didn't die of, but did she have dementia? you know, in 2017, 36% more people would say, yeah, grandma had dementia compared to 2004. That's a really big difference. I think you should ask me what that, what that difference means. Like, what does that reflect? Does it mean that in fact, more people are getting dementia? No, it doesn't mean that. (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, because for everything we've already said, we said, you know, this is about not only people coming forward and getting getting care, but also the clinical providers recognizing the disease, thinking that there's something to do about it, so they write it down in a medical record and actually bill for it. Um, it sounds kind of silly. You would think, well, don't they just always write down everything? And, and no, we don't. <laughs> we write down the main things that we treat. And... So this rise reflects differences in likely our policy, which we can talk more about, I'm sure, um, of, of how we record things, but also whether this disease is front of mind. And I think that's changed dramatically over this time period. Dementia has become a front of mind, front page of the newspaper kind of disease, whereas in the past it really wasn't. This was a disease of people who lived in nursing homes and we tried to pretend it didn't exist. We didn't want to see this, right? This was senility, the word people use. This is what old people got and we tried to pretend it was never going to happen to us. And today it's a different world. We recognize what this disease means to the individual, what it means to families, what it means to the health system. And actually there's more science that's saying maybe someday we can actually Influence the tra- trajectory of this disease, you know till now we really haven't had a treatment that influences um, the course of this disease
2: just to maybe underscore one thing that you said before, um, your analysis what you're not trying to argue is anything about what these people are dying of, right? It's that they're dying with dementia,
1: yeah, absolutely. we cannot say on claims data what they're dying of i mean i i think not with this design if one were interested and everybody was hospitalized it's possible you could you could look at you know really detailed analysis of of hospital claims to understand among people who died in the hospital typically people look to death records for that you know uh, death certificates and in fact um, there was a change. One of the things that motivated this study was a number of years back, we noted a change in the approach to billing or, or to documenting on death certificates and saw that dementia rose as a cause of death. And again, that was a not a prevalence incidence change, not a disease change, but a change in the way think people think about um, and document according to instructions and policy uh, disease. I mean, I guess one of the things I really wanted to talk a little bit about is this is not so different from lots of other scenarios, right? The way disease, the construct of a disease is influenced by many, many things other than just its pure, true prevalence in the population. You know, back in the 2000s, maybe you guys are too young to remember this, but you know, there was the rise of restless leg as a syndrome, um, as a disease that was treated. And you know, there's this nice, nice paper by Steve Lotion and Lisa Schwartz about the media's influence on that and what public service announcement do, and the drivers behind pharmaceutical companies who now have a drug, so therefore we we then fi- have to find the population to treat. And I think you know, it's not just media and pharmaceutical that also occurs. Um, in our clinical world, when we recognize we've been missing the boat on something, right? Here's an underdiagnosed disease that's incredibly burdensome. We now have a new policy initiative, the National Alzheimer's Act, to really address the burden of this disease. I mean, there's been a wholesale effort to change how we think about and how we address this disease, and that influences um, who seeks care. It influences what we do in the clinic setting and what we write about on those clinic setting, in those clinic settings. So this is not unique to dementia. (laughs) I think what we're really trying to do is call out um, to the public, policymakers, researchers to, to be aware that there has been this change probably culturally, but also in our data that we use to make important judgments about where to invest in the future. Um, and and how to understand care delivery that we understand those changes over time.
2: Did you find anything that surprised you in particular?
1: So you know, whenever you go into a study, when you're a scientist, you have a hypothesis, right? My guess this is I want I want to answer this question, right? I want to say like, you know what I, I think this I in this case, you said, I think this has changed. And you know what? Most of the change should probably be due to this electronic health record and the National Alzheimer's Act and all these changes. And the biggest surprise, because I was at equipoise, which is that term of, is this going to be right or is this not going to be right? I'm in the middle. I'm not sure. The biggest surprise is we were right. Yeah, We're not always right, but I think that it was such a clear, it was so clearly right. <laughs> Right, that that the change was much bigger than I expected, and the time period of the change it was not a steady increase over time, year over year increases. What we saw was this bump up in the middle years when three three thing at least three things happened. Um, I think Matt rec- you know discussed these in the introduction, but um, we were having a lot more uh, discussions. You know, the NAPA, the National Alzheimer's Plan Act passed, and We also were having the rapid expansion of electronic health records, particularly in hospitals in this period, which is important because that's where we've seen the billing of this diagnosis really increase. Because once you have an electronic health record, it's much easier to code and carry forward diagnoses than when everything was handwritten, right? And then we also see Medicare increasing the number of slots. It sounds so mundane, but they increased the number of slots of diagnoses. So I now can say not just the top five, the top 25 or you know, whatever those numbers are, I can now list many, many more diagnoses that were far, maybe farther down my list. Um, and all those things sort of happened around the same time. And we saw the slope, the increase in the rate of diagnosis being put on records really directly happened in that time period, as opposed to a gradual increase over time.
0: Out of all those things, so, you know, incentives around <laughs> payment, when did that kind of start?
1: Yeah, you know this is. I've been talking about culture. Yeah, yeah, cultural cultural influences, and if if this was all culture and our attitude toward this disease, we would be seeing steady increase over time, right? Until we maximize, until we entirely get rid of underdiagnosis. But that's not what we saw. We saw this very time limited increase, and then the sort of increase flattens out. So um, incentives. So, why are there incentives to bill more diagnoses? Well, it turns out that health systems have these um, scores for their sort of um, overall illness of the population they care for. So, it's to the advantage of the health system to have us bill as many diagnoses as possible. That, so, that's not even about just the individual disease, right? Like, just to diagnose as many as possible. Um, you know, back in the day when I first started many, many years ago, there were differential payment for psychiatric diagnoses versus medical diagnoses. So you'd have a real incentive not to bill the dementia diagnoses that would have fallen under a psychiatric diagnosis code because you would have been paid less. So that incentive is actually gone long ago. But the new incentive coming up, and one of the things that really drove me to want to do this study, um, was that uh, now in managed care, Medicare Advantage, Dementia is part of the risk adjustment for their payment models. Um, Now, this study that we're reporting on here isn't in managed care in Medicare Advantage, it's in P for Service. But it was important for me to um, establish the baseline, what's going on in the population, so that when we look at the influence of incentives on, on what people get and the care they receive under Medicare Advantage, we at least know the context from which we're coming. Um, And we try to account for that um, and not attribute everything we see to only the um, financial incentive because there are multiple things going on here.
0: Many of our listeners probably aren't healthcare providers. So I have a really basic question about how diagnoses make it in the bill. So you're both practicing, both Donovan and, and, and Julie are both physicians. So I'm just curious, like that process of when you treat a patient, somewhere in the record, you click the diagnosis. And is that exactly what shows up on the bill? Or is there like a level beyond that in terms of billing and coding that could potentially change things?
1: Yeah, it sort of depends on setting a little bit. So let me talk about the outpatient setting first. So in the outpatient setting, um, basically what I bill will end up on the record. Um, And it's kind of funny how that works. So I could have to write in a diagnosis. You know, when I first started, we had little check boxes on a sheet of paper and I could check the boxes. So the common diagnoses were there, but if I wanted something else, I had to write it in by hand, right? That's a little disincentive to use a, a less common diagnosis. And then we went to the electronic health record. So yeah, you can actually type in a diagnosis and search and get you know, much more precise diagnosis. So then you click those. And then it'll be automatically offered up to you. So in subsequent visits, you can re-click them again if they're important. One of the interesting things when you talk about incentives, I already mentioned the health system incentive to get us to bill certain kinds of diagnoses. And certain diagnoses have higher weight, um, according to HCCs. So then you start getting health systems offering you the higher-weighted diagnoses, which is pretty fascinating, right? Like I could use this code or that code in my mind for the same disease. They seem really similar, but this one has a little bit more incentive for payment. So very sophisticated electronic health records can start offering that up. So that's on the outpatient side. But I will say, you know, on the outpatient side, if I order a blood test, there has to be a diagnosis code that motivates that blood test i can't just say i'm going to order a glucose because the sun's shining right i have to say i'm ordering a glucose because i suspect diabetes or this person's having a frequent urination so there is a there is an issue of you have to have diagnoses tied to to any other kinds of things you're ordered on the hospital side, all those things I just said are are true, but there is an extra layer of coding and billing people really reviewing um, because there's an extra layer of how those actually end up on the bill. Um, happens in the outpatient side too, but much more in the hospital side, which relates to this paper, right? What we saw, the biggest increase was in the hospital setting. So somewhere along the message got out that we want this, you know, this diagnosis is important to have there. And you saw the biggest increase on the hospital side.
0: That, that's fascinating that in like electronic medical records that there might be situations where you type in a diagnosis like, wouldn't you prefer to do this one? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, it's true. And you know, I have to say the other thing, and this is important for dementia, is that people, patients, their family members, see those bills and diagnoses. And that actually can have an influence on what a clinician does. And I say that particularly in the case of dementia because there are some communities in whom this disease is very stigmatized. They don't want that on their record. And people can come, if you're a physician and somebody comes back to you and says, that's wrong. Don't put that on my record. Um, that can really influence you in an anecdotal way about how you handle this diagnosis in the future. There's some things that are just more sensitive than others, right? I mean, I think the history of HIV is along those lines. There are just diagnoses that are more sensitive. And in some scenarios, dementia is a sensitive
0: diagnosis as well. So you mentioned that you looked at different settings. Were those different places that the person got the first diagnosis of dementia? Or how how did you do that? And, And tell us more about that.
1: We mostly put this toward um, understanding where the, where the claims were going to show up, um, for research. So people can, um, be getting, people get their healthcare in multiple settings simultaneously. They're in the outpatient setting, they're in the hospital, they're in getting hospice, they're getting home care services. Um, so the first thing we wanted to see is just how much does this diagnosis get billed in all those places? Um, and, um, you know the the sort of professional services, which is the physicians, the visits, are, are the places that you most commonly see it, and that's been consistent all along. Um, we've seen major rises in the hospital setting and in the hospice setting in the diagnosis being used. But one of the areas we were concerned is this issue of misdiagnosis, like somebody puts the wrong diagnosis, and you might see that if you only ever see one. Right when you see a diagnosis in only one setting maybe they don't quite have it right. The classic one there is delirium. Like somebody's in the hospital and they get delirious. And could that be mistakenly billed as dementia? That can be confusing clinically. Um, and so that was the other thing we looked at. It was in the case where it was only billed in one place. And we've seen that drop off dramatically. Um, really, um, when the diagnosis is being billed, it's being billed across multiple different settings um, today compared to maybe 20 years ago.
2: I could imagine that over the period of time, what I think 2004 to 2017 that you all looked at, uh, there were possibly significant changes in what end-of-life care looked like, um, and I wonder sort of how did you think about that or account for that, and then is there any reason to think that that influenced the likelihood of, of finding a dementia diagnosis?
1: Yeah, Donna, that's a really important question. It was a real motivator for being on this study because... I already said at the beginning, like one of the things that drove this field is concerns about what kind of care this population is getting at the end of life and how it's affecting their quality. So you might think, you might hope, that if people are more likely to recognize the disease, they'll take it into account and have really important conversations with the person and their family about their goals of care and what they want done. And you might expect them to get less aggressive care at the end of life, you know, less care in the ICU, fewer of these treatments that are meant to prolong life in the short term, I don't know if that term makes sense, but like putting people on a medical mechanical ventilator is really prolonging life in the short term, (laughs) right? You have pneumonia today, it's gonna keep them alive, bridge this, but if somebody has a disease that's limiting their life over months to a year, it doesn't necessarily um, help that disease, right? So what we found um, is that, well, let's back up for everybody care at the end of life has changed. We've seen a, a big increase in the use of hospice, for example. Um, and so the, the population with Alzheimer's disease just parallels what's happened in the rest of the population. Um, so there's been a shift toward less use of the ICU in a terminal hospitalization. Um, so the last time somebody's hospitalized they are less likely to be um, placed in an ICU. And overall, we've seen more, Deaths occur outside of the hospital. That's been shown a number of times. In the case of Alzheimer's disease, um, those deaths are split between in long-term nursing homes and in the community. Um, so we've seen that. In terms of life-prolonging therapies that I mentioned, it's a mixed, a mixed bag. We really haven't seen much difference in the use of mechanical ventilation and dialysis, but we did have seen drops in the feeding, in the use of feeding tubes. Um, So there has, again, another body of literature and quality of care effort around the use of feeding tubes that have likely made that influence more than a general attitude toward end of life care. So bottom line, we didn't, one of the hopes might be that by recognizing Alzheimer's disease, the patients, the families, the doctors, the nurses would sort of rally around and come, come away with a less aggressive treatment of care in the 2017 period compared to the 2004. Um, we did not see that uniquely happening in Alzheimer's disease. Um, it really, what's happening to people with Alzheimer's disease is very similar. It's happening to everybody else um, who's dying at older ages in the United States.
0: So I'm, I'm assuming that we don't necessarily think that the prevalence of dementia is necessarily changing over time. I guess from your perspective, like what should people take away from the study?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, where where do we want to push on, on on helping people with this disease? I think the big takeaway here is yes, the community of medical and health service providers are recognizing this disease better than they ever have. Um, and that's a good thing. You know, you can't improve care of something that you're not recognizing. So, underdiagnosis seems to be declining, at least in late stage disease. And that's good news. Um, I think for the researchers who are listening, um, the big message here is really remembering <laughs> when you're designing your studies and thinking about it that there are many things influencing what we see in administrative data that aren't purely about the disease. And this study really highlights it, right? This is the changes that occurred are not about um, something happening in the community and increased rates of the disease. It is totally about what's going on and how we bill for it and how people, um, you know, how much people think about the diagnosis. We're not seeing any other differences there. So, my hope is that now that we're moving toward better diagnosis, or at least more frequent diagnosis, that we can um, then focus on actually improving that care delivery. Um, you know, it's a long haul um, to get people better care, and just um, how we bill it alone doesn't doesn't reflect that quality. And so, I think that's the next place for us to go.
0: This is probably a little bit too much in the weeds, but you know, sometimes researchers, when they construct a cohort they're trying to identify people with a certain onset of a disease. And sometimes for things that are rare ish, they have to go over multiple years to do that. Do you think that like, I mean, if we take sort of like what you showed in the, the diagnosis of dementia over time among decedents, as sort of a, a broader implication that it's being recognized in general. Um, Do you think that researchers should kind of take pause in terms of just considering that when they think about what years they're going to put together to do a study with?
1: Oh yeah. You know, lots of, Studies try to compare now to now to some years before. Oh, we've gotten so much better because we are doing something, you know, we, we see when we compare now to 10 years ago. But you really have to think about the people identified now are different from the people who were identified 10 years ago. So um, that's why it was so important for me to get this study. On the books before we start do that next wave of studies, um, so that we understand um, how different the population is or is not um, over time. In this case, the people diagnosed with dementia actually, if you look at their age, comorbidity scores, gender breakup, they're not that much different than they were in 2004. So that's why I think this paper argues that we're not diagnosing um, a different set of people. We're just diagnosing more of the people that have always been diagnosed, if that makes sense, because um, it could have been that, say, there was a community, maybe the young, the younger community of people with cognitive impairment were coming forward, or maybe a certain racial or ethnic group were really coming forward, and, and, and the real efforts being made and underdiagnosis there, and we don't really see that in the data. The underlying characteristics of the population identified have not changed very much, so um, I think your point is important that whenever we do things looking at changes over time, you always have to be really careful on your interpretation and your methods um, so that we don't pass along an inaccurate message to our community. You, you hear me when I, whenever I speak, I give grand rounds or give anything on this. You'll say, whenever I do a claims-based study, I always talk about people diagnosed with dementia. I don't talk about people with dementia. Because there's an enormous population of people with dementia who are not yet diagnosed, living today in our communities, and so I always challenge people: if you ever hear me say, <laughs> don't hear you know, hear me miss mess that up when I'm using administrative data. You know, these are the people who have come forward and been identified, so they are diagnosed with the disease. But there's certainly a much bigger community out there.
2: So we've we've covered a ton of ground. I'm curious for. Uh, say researchers who are interested in kind of moving into this space, getting into using Medicare claims for dementia, any additional pearls, anything else we haven't touched on that you think would be really important from the get-go?
1: Yeah, so number one, don't create it, Don't, don't start from scratch. There's a ton out there. There are published papers, we have recently published papers, um, we, all, we advance science by doing um, repetition and being able to recreate what somebody else did. If we're all using different methods, we don't know that our results are comparable. So definitely reach out to any of us, reach out to any investigators you know, the published literature, um, don't start from square one. There's been a lot done. And a really important message, particularly to the non-clinicians um, who use this kind of data is being deeply aware of where the data comes from. That's not so obvious, right? Like it's just obvious you should know where your data comes from. But if you're doing a survey in the field, you've seen the questions, you can read the questions, you know how they're delivered. administrative claims are kind of a black box for a lot of people. They don't understand the process of how a person comes to a clinic Chooses a doctor who may or may not make a right or wrong diagnosis, and whether or not that diagnosis, you know, all of those subtle things that influence that process of symptom to actually recognize recognition and diagnosis of disease is complex, and you can't just take the data at its face. face learn it, you know, spend some time understanding the process um, through which the data you are using for your research uh, came to be. Got to be accurate and um, really have the most impact on the field. One thing I would say for researchers too is that in the space of health policy, healthcare delivery, we have different kinds of people doing that research. We have physicians like me and Donovan. We have people like you, Matt, who are data scientists who have some clinical background, but not, you know, not in this area at all. And then we have wonderful economists using these claims data. Um, and to my mind, Because of the intricacies and the nuance of the data, the clinical process, the challenge of understanding cost data, the best research is multidisciplinary research. Like we need to put the knowledge and the experience of the clinical provider alongside the really good data scientists alongside the really good economists to really get the best, best methods with the best questions, most accurately interpreted. <laughs> and it, it's, 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 I think this is an area that requires that more than more than others um, because um, the stakes are high dollar wise. Like when we're talking about Medicare billing and Medicare expenditures and people's life policy, the stakes are really high. And, and um, a lot of the knowledge is siloed. And so getting that real interdisciplinary work, I think is where we're going to advance the field most substantially. Um, it's also the most fun.
0: This has been great. Julie, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and the data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation At the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.